Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to thank you so much personally for the kind comments and the words of encouragement you have left, and, and especially on our Facebook feed, but also uh, through emails and cards. Thank you so much. This is a, a different time for us as we learn to navigate these uncharted waters and try to do things a little differently. And so there's a, a trial and error process that goes on behind the scenes. And, you know, I thank my coworkers and, and the elders and everybody who helps to make this happen. And I want to thank you for being patient and, and tuning in and, and your encouragement. I want to start this evening with a, with a poem. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted the warm days, and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. Then my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. You know, many folks try to convince themselves that once they reach a certain mile marker in life or a certain point in life, that everything will fall into place and they will be happy and comfortable once they become an adult, for instance, they feel like that uh, life will get in order, they get married, they have a good job, start a family, and everything's going to be blissful and peaceful. But then frustration comes. Like when you enter into adulthood and you move out of your, your parents' home, you're finally on your own, but being on your own also comes with responsibilities that maybe you didn't foresee like paying the rent and, and being in charge of all of your you know, chores, like washing your clothes, ironing your clothes, and you know, paying for other utilities and things of that nature. Married life is great, but it also proves to be you know, somewhat of a stress in that after a while, the butterflies from your stomach fade, and you know, you've never really lived with a person before, and so that's, that's something that's difficult at times. You get that good job, that job maybe that you've always dreamed of, and and you start work and realize, wow, this is tougher than I thought, and I've got to work long hours just to make ends meet. Or you have that first child, and, and while you love that child and wouldn't trade that experience for anything, you learn that there's a lot of sleepless nights and that that child absorbs all of your attention. You know, we, we often think that if we can just reach the next milestone in life, things will be better, when in actuality, we need to try to find contentment where we're at. You anticipate the day that you can retire and just sit on the front porch and watch the grass grow. And then that day comes and you get to sit on the porch and watch the grass grow. And what, do you, what else do you do? Well, you reminisce and you talk about the good old days and you wish that you could relive them. Someone once said that we are the half-empty generation. Instead of having a cup that runneth over, we have a cup that leaketh out of the bottom. Contentment should be an everyday style of living for the Christian, but all too often we find that our cup is only filled with want. We are always wanting more, always looking for that next great something that we are certain will satisfy us. People seem to always be looking ahead to a day in the future when they can finally say, I've made it. I'm finally content. Yet no matter what point in life we reach or, or how many things we accumulate, contentment seems to elude us. And that's because true contentment and complete satisfaction comes from one source. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 23. 
Undoubtedly, the 23rd Psalm is perhaps the most well-known psalm. Many people can quote it from memory. Most of us are familiar with these beautiful words. And one of the things that I find interesting about this psalm is that the writer does not begin with a lament or a certain problem that he is facing. He doesn't begin by asking God why, like we see many times in the Psalms. He, he begins and ends, rather, by praising God for his goodness towards him. From the first mention of God to the last, his care and grace are reflected upon with grateful appreciation. This entire psalm is about one man's life with God, or better yet, a sheep and his life with the Good Shepherd. And it's this life that is signified by an intensely uh, personal relationship with the Lord. Seventeen times in six verses, the writer refers to himself, and thirteen times he refers to the Lord. This is a personal testimony about the satisfaction that is rooted in an unwavering fellowship with God. The words of this psalm convey a confidence and a true satisfaction in the Lord. God is pictured as a provider, as a guide, as a protector, as an encourager, which are all essential traits in being a good shepherd. And quite often we hear this psalm read at funerals because of the comforting words, but make no mistake, this is not a psalm about death. No, this is a psalm about life, life with the faithful shepherd. Now, the superscription that appears above this psalm in your Bibles indicates that it was written by David. A man who knew something about sheep and a man who knew something about shepherding. He was a man who knew something about God as well. And as David writes this psalm, he does so from the perspective of a sheep. He speaks as if, the, if he is one of the flock and, and, and with pride he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And that first line, that opening line really sets the tone for the entire psalm. That one line there is really the theme of the entire psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He looks after me. He provides for me. He encourages me. He sustains me. He is my shepherd. As we talked about this morning, this is personal for David, and it should be personal with us. The same one who provided manna for the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness, the same one who encouraged Joshua, the same one who fed Elijah by the brook, the same one that laid down his life for the sheep is the one who has promised to sustain us. I shall not want is a proud and bold statement that comes from a sheep who is completely satisfied with the guidance of the Good Shepherd. It's also a statement of faith. I shall not want signifies that I have complete trust in the shepherd to provide for my needs. It means that I have left my life in his hands and my security rests in the one who leads me. You know, many years ago, Wendy's had a commercial that featured some, some elderly ladies. One in particular was pretty outspoken. And you may remember this commercial. She looked at her bun that was uh, rather large and a little piece of meat, a patty of meat that was on the bun. And she says, she exclaims actually, hey, where's the beef? And you know, many people are asking that question today. Many people are looking for the beef. They want the substance that's what this lady is doing in the commercial. She sees this big old bun and this little patty, and she wants to know, hey, where's the substance? You know, the, the, the patty should be fitting the bun. And many people in life are looking for more substance. They're looking for the beef. They're struggling to find meaning. It's like the dad who told his son that he needed to go and get an education, and the son said, why? 
Well, so you can get a good job, the dad replied, and the son said, but why? Well, so you can earn a good living, the dad said, but why, said the son. Well, so you can buy a car to drive and a house to live in and clothes to wear, and the son said, yeah, but why? And the dad said, so you can have money set aside to pay for your your child's education so that you don't have to work and study at the same time. And the son replied, yes, dad, but why? Well, so that you can get old and you can retire and relax, said the dad. And the son said, yes, but why? So that when you die, you'll have something to leave behind, the dad replied. The son is asking, where's the beef? Is life only about earning a living, making money? Growing old, retiring, and then dying, is that all life is about? Or is there more to life than that? You know, there's got to be more than that. There's got to be more substance than that. That can't be all that there is. Where's the beef is a question that is asked thousands of times a day by by a person, maybe several people, people who are in hot pursuit of things that they believe will satisfy them, only to find that there's really no real substance in the things that they're seeking. Many people are discovering that life It's kind of like that running back who busts through the line of scrimmage and they're racing towards the end zone and they outrun the defense and they they dive into the end zone and they score the touchdown and they get up and they're celebrating and their teammates are mobbing them and, and the crowd is celebrating. But then all the celebration is curtailed because there's a flag on the play. Yeah, there was holding on the offense and the touchdown doesn't count. It's coming back. There's many people like that, that upon further review, the call has been reversed. No touchdown. People are galloping at breakneck speed for the goal line, but once they get there, they quickly realize that it's not all that's cracked up to be. Where's the beef? Because there's no real substance. And it makes you wonder, why are so many people asking this question? Why do so many people spend so much of their life pursuing so many things that, that only leave them disappointed? And I think it's because they're aimless. They are directionless, maybe even dead. We've, you know, we've got dead people driving cars. We've got dead people going to work every day. We've got dead people in marriages. We've got two dead people that are married. We've got dead people that even come to church. Why are so many rich people depressed? Because they're living a dead life. The world is full of sheep without a shepherd. Dead sheep just wandering around without a flock in need of a shepherd. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give us abundant life. He came to give abundant life to directionless sheep that didn't even know what they were looking for. Remember the words of John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The beef, the substance is found in a relationship with our Lord because he and he alone is the only one who can truly satisfy. He brings the abundant life. You may remember Job in the Old Testament. Job lost everything in one fell swoop. He lost all his possessions, all his wealth, and all of his family. He and he alone really represents, uh, you know, uh, from the Bible, someone that's an extreme case. Because what did he do after losing everything? Well, he fell on his face and he worshiped God. And i got to be honest with you, I don't know that I could react that way after losing everything. But notice verses 20 through 22 of Job chapter 1. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You know, you look at this episode and, and you think about Satan being allowed to test Job. The accuser's accusation was, or his belief was, his reasoning was, that 
Job was hedged in, and that's why he served God. You take everything away from him, and he'll immediately drop God like a bad habit. And it's something I think about. It's something that I pray about. It's something that resonates in my mind. Am I hedged in? Do I believe in the blessing more than the blesser? Am I focused more on the things that my Heavenly Father has given me and blessed me with, or is He just enough? Is God enough? Turn to Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, it reads like this. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid aside, they laid it aside till the morning, and as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses says, Eat today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Makes you wonder, why did God set it up this way? Why didn't he just set up a 24-7 buffet, kind of like Golden Corral, where people could just come and go as they pleased? Why did he do it this way? Well, because God was teaching a lesson on dependence. The people grumbled and complained, and so he met their need. But like so many living in this day and age, the people overlooked the fact that God had already met their great need. They were in the presence of God. They were God's people. Ultimate satisfaction should have been found in him. They were his sheep. In fact, this is a major theme that we see play out across the Old Testament into the New Testament, that, that God wants people to rely on him, whether it be with manna or in the case of idolatry idolatry or war or like sheep that were constantly straying, God constantly reprimands those and he brings them back into the fold, back into compliance because that's what the good shepherd does. In fact, we see this theme reiterated over and over again in scripture. We see it in John 15 as Jesus says he is the vine and we are the branches as he talks about this concept of abiding. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As part of the model prayer, Jesus says, pray like this. And he includes, give us this day our daily bread. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not worry about what you eat or what you will wear. Just seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We see this play out over and over again, this idea that God is in control and we place our lives in his hands. Scripture assures us that God is enough. I think I may have told you this before, but when I was younger, I was constantly reminded of how blessed I was. My grandfather would pick me up from school in his car and he'd say, you know, uh, when I was your age, I didn't have anyone to pick me up from school. I walked to school three miles in a, in a blizzard uphill both ways. 
My mother at the dinner table would often tell me that I needed to clean my plate because there are starving people in other countries that would love to be at this table and enjoy this food. My dad would tell me that when he was young, he was so poor that he'd play kick the can because they didn't have a ball. I think about what I will tell my kids, you know, as, as I get older and I start reminiscing, you know, I... I may tell them about the, you know, the rotary dial phone that we had hanging on our wall where you actually had to place your finger into a dial and rotate it around, and you had to do that for every number. If you wanted any privacy, it only went as far as this kinked up cord that you could stretch maybe for you know, a, a foot or two around the corner so that you could maybe get a little bit of privacy. You know, I didn't have the luxury when we first uh, had a TV of a remote control. You actually had to walk across the room to turn the channel. Some of you can relate to that. My kids will never know the pain of dial-up internet. You know, you think about how spoiled we are. And you think about how there's constantly new luxuries being afforded to us that we can indulge in. But do those things bring contentment? Where's the beef? And I'll tell you where it's at. It's in a relationship with God. True contentment is only found in a relationship with God because if God is all that you had, He would certainly be enough. You would be adequately supplied. But let's look at this from another side for just a minute because after all, this is a two-sided coin and it's not just about seeking a relationship with God, although that is huge, but there's another party involved, right? So take note of what is written in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So in your Bibles, underline the phrase, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You know, when we think of the word jealous we kind of tend to think of something that's rather junior high-ish. You know, we think of the spoiled athlete that doesn't want to pass the ball because he doesn't want anyone else to have the glory or the spotlight. You know, maybe we think of, you know, the businessman that wants to get all the glory for himself, and so he, he steps on others so he can get to the top. We think about maybe the boy who punches a classmate because he looked at his girlfriend. It's the parent that, get ang that gets angry with the coach because, you know, their child didn't get to start or didn't play enough. And so for God to be jealous, it seems like we're, we're lowering him down to our level. But actually, in the Hebrew language, jealous doesn't mean the same thing that we see it in our language. In fact, jealous in the Hebrew is not a negative. It's closely related to our word for zealous. And we know what the word zealous means, right? It means intense enthusiasm. It is a burning desire or passion for something. In other words, God is zealous for you. He is passionate about you. He is jealous for your heart, not because he is petty or insecure, but because he loves you and he desires a relationship with you. You know, I would be more than a little concerned if some girl was flirting with me, not that that would ever, ever happen, but I would be more than a little bit concerned if, if a girl was flirting with me and my wife was unconcerned. It would bother me a little bit, more than a little bit, if my wife didn't care one bit that someone else was flirting with me. Because as my wife, I believe that she should care about the relationship. And she does, by the way. But what if she didn't? What if she didn't care if anybody else was flirting with me or if I went on a date with someone else? Because when you love someone and you're invested in the relationship, you expect there to be zealousness. 
You expect them to be jealous, right? You expect them to only want your heart and to be devoted only to you. Imagine seeing me at a restaurant and I'm sitting there with another woman and you come in, you say, Chris, what are you doing? This is not your wife. And I say, relax. You know, I'm just on a date. And you say, well, you can't be on a date. You're a married man. Where's your wife? And I say, relax. She's at home. I love her too. I just love this woman as well. My guess is that wouldn't be okay with you because we understand the covenant relationship. And so how we look at a marriage is the same way we need to be looking at our relationship with God. This is a covenant exclusive relationship. Just as I am to have no other wives, I'm to have no other gods. God is not asking to be the top of the list. He's asking to be the list. There is no list, in fact. He is the only one. He doesn't supersede all other gods. He is the only God you serve. He has exclusive rights to your heart because He deserves that. No other God deserves anything that what God should get from us. He is the only one that deserves our full and undivided, exclusive devotion. Only the one true God can fulfill our deepest longing and satisfy our most profound need. Where's the beef? I'll tell you where it's at. It's in a relationship with God. It's you sandwiched between God and Jesus. I am told that a shepherd marks each of his sheep so that he can tell which ones are his, even from a distance. And he does this by taking a knife, what is called a killing knife, and he cuts a distinctive mark into the ear of the sheep. Now, it's not an easy thing to do, not for the sheep or the shepherd, but through this mutual suffering comes a lifelong mark that can never be erased. And so I ask you, what is, what is our mark? As, as Christians, what is our mark? What mark do we bear that indicates that we belong to the Good Shepherd? You might say that it's baptism. You might say that it's the Holy Spirit that is our seal. You could say that our identifying mark is love, and none of those would be wrong. But perhaps our distinctive mark, as much as anything, is commitment. Maybe it's also contentment. Maybe it's our commitment to God as a sheep to his shepherd and being content in that relationship. Are we satisfied with God? Are we able to lay down and rest knowing that we have all we need in Jesus? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a difference that little pronoun my makes. He is my shepherd. It's the difference between joy and sorrow, between purpose and meaninglessness. It's the difference between abundant life and no life. And it's the difference between more and enough. Is Jesus enough? Are you a satisfied sheep? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to, to preach your word. And we thank you so much for those who have tuned in and, and, and those that are seeking to live according to your will and to follow in your, in your footsteps. We pray that we can all seek to be sheep who follow the shepherd. And we pray that we can also help those sheep who have strayed and we can be uh, lights in the world around us to hopefully attract more sheep to your fold. And we are just so thankful that you have allowed us to live and breathe and to follow. And we pray that we can find our complete and total contentment and satisfaction in you. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for, for allowing us to be in your presence and making a way so that we can be with you for all eternity.
It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.